Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at schwepp.net. Episode 7, We're Together in Dreams, Dreaming and Western Esotericism. In studying Western esotericism, we encounter a number of what you might call outliers of the human condition, radically altered states of consciousness, for example particularly those resulting in visions or imaginal journeys, are a mainstay of esoteric religious movements. Magical traditions seemingly open the doors of possibility, allowing what is normally deemed impossible to occur. And we find symbolic types of language and symbolic types of interpretation in Western esotericism, the first aimed at hiding deeper truths within a spoken or written text from the casual reader or listener, keeping them esoteric, and the second aimed at unearthing these same hidden levels of meaning. In other words, esoteric writing and esoteric interpretation. These modes of expression are by their nature, not the sort of thing you use to give exact information in a precise way, or the sort of things you use to keep secrets, but rather ways in which truth may be publicly hidden, or in which supposed deeper meanings may be excavated from all manner of surface texts, allowing for esoteric speculations to blossom on seemingly arid soil. Such unusual aspects of the range of human experiences and behaviors are reasons why scholars have been led to think about esotericism in terms of marginality or exclusion. These are typically not aspects of mainstream religious thought or practice, or mainstream philosophy. But in fact, as is increasingly being emphasized in the study of Western esotericism, these currents of thought and practice are rarely locatable in some kind of stable position outside of a notional mainstream discourse. Indeed, the esoteric sometimes becomes the mainstream, as we see in the history of Christianity, for example, an esoteric movement within Judaism, which became a dominant world religion. But none of this should surprise us. After all, Each and every person on earth, including you, gentle listener, enters into radically altered states of consciousness and has visions on a regular basis. We've all experienced the kind of impossible occurrences in which magic specializes, and we all speak to ourselves in an esoteric language of symbols. This is because we all dream. Dreams and the visions they bring are at the heart of Western esotericism, but they're also at the heart of what it is to be human. Reading the text of Roy Orbison's 1963 hit single, In Dreams, for its esoteric subtextual meaning, it is clear that the great Roy was thinking about this very phenomenon when he said, we're together in dreams. A great number of people in the modern world seem not to remember their dreams, and this may be a symptom or perhaps a cause of what the hell is wrong with modern societies. But modern scientific research has also made it clear that whether you remember it or not, You dream every single time you lie down to sleep for an hour or more. Indeed, the rapid eye movements and other physiological indicators of dreaming normally occur several times a night. We descend into dreams and then reascend into some other state, in a rhythmic, cyclical pattern. And woe betide anyone whose dream cycle is disrupted for very long. The human personality quickly descends into psychosis when deprived of normal, healthy dreaming. Our rational consciousness, in other words, is built on the irrational foundation of dreams. In this episode, 
we shall ruminate on dreams, on the role they've played in Western esotericism, and their potential for bringing the uncanny and impossible into everyday life. Jane Harrison, the Cambridge historian of religions, said that myth is the dream thinking of a people, as dreams are the myths of the individual. And there's something in that. Whatever myths are exactly, they are surely stories or narratives. If they're good myths, good stories, they will be stories that tell us something useful about ourselves. And if they're bad myths, they won't stick around for long anyway. And whatever dreams are, they are surely stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. Even the most run-of-the-mill dreams are like this, like when you have a dream which basically just goes through the stuff you did that day, but in a different way, or depicts the fulfillment of a wish that you didn't get to satisfy in your waking life, like that dream where you hook up with that unattainable object of desire. This kind of stuff is stories about us. But dreams, although they're stories about us, they seem to be written in a strange and baffling language. Part of the story of Western esotericism lies in attempts to decipher that language. Dream interpretation has been a major preoccupation of many esoteric thinkers, as we shall see in the course of the podcast. But Harrison's insight that myths are linked somehow to dreams seems to be true on this level as well. Myths are often very obscure in the way that they tell their stories. And like dreams, they often tell a number of different stories together in a jumbled up way. But probably for as long as humans have been dreaming and telling stories, that is, probably for as long as there have been humans, people have been interpreting these stories to try to excavate the hidden meanings within them. In other words, dreams, to people with a certain way of thinking at least, invite esoteric interpretation, just like myths do. Dreams then are as old as humanity, but in this episode, we'll discuss some of the ways in which the Western world has made sense of dreams, starting at the very beginning. We'll talk about the Bronze Age worldview that we find in the Homeric poems, in which dreams are very important, and then move into later Greco-Roman thought about dreams. It's clear from the outset that, to the ancients, some dreams can tell us truths. In fact, dreams are one of the chief ways for the gods and the dead to communicate with humans directly. And then other dreams are simply phantasms, which can be either pretty meaningless or intentionally false. We'll want to discuss the ancient magical traditions associated with dreams as well, including incubation. And we'll also want to talk about the origins of the traditions of interpreting dreams in the West, the hermeneutics of uncovering the truths which lie hidden within the symbolic dream presentation. But let's start at the beginning, as we like to do on the Schwepp, and go back to the Homeric poems, the beginning of the Western literary tradition. Now in Homer, dreaming is a passive activity. You do not have a dream. A dream has you. Actually, a dream visits you. The normal vocabulary is the same vocabulary you would use to go visit a friend at their house. In fact, the Greek word oneros in the Homeric poems nearly always means a figure in a dream rather than the dream itself. In later classical Greek, oneros, along with a few other words like onar and edupnion, regularly refers to the dream as a whole. But in Homer, the term oneros tends to be the central figure of the dream, which is usually a god or a dead person. Now, the idea of the figure in a dream being the oneros changes in the classical period, but the idea of a visitation does not. Dreams are still, in the later period, things which come to one from outside and are seen by the dreamer. In all eras of antiquity, to have a dream was, for a Greek, to be visited by something. Even when the dreamer 
herself as the central figure of the dream. She'll describe the experience as seeing a dream. So I saw a dream of myself. So going back to the Bronze Age, you are visited by an Oneros, which may be a god or it may be a dead person visiting you from the underworld. Presumably, the people in Homer's day also had more run-of-the-mill dreams, but we don't get descriptions of them. Homer is concerned with heroes and gods, and heroes don't dream about petty stuff, right? They dream about the big stuff. The idea that the dead can appear to humans in dreams also continues into the classical period, as we saw last episode, and it will appear again, for example, when we discuss the myth of Ur in Plato's Republic. But back in the Homeric world, the dream visits you, and it stands over your head. Now, it may be that the idea here was that the dream figure, the god or dead person, was actually in the room with the sleeping person, standing there, and sort of appeared in the vision by virtue of this physical proximity. Another interpretation is that hyperkephales is intended to mean in plain sight. It's a bit difficult to see how over one's head or above one's head can mean in plain sight, but there you go. It, this is a theory out there. And indeed, in Virgil's Aeneid, which is a Latin epic poem, much, much later than Homer, but modeled on Homer, dreams appear ante oculos, before one's eyes, which could be an attestation of this meaning in Homer, uh, at least an attestation that that's how the Romans read Homer. So in the Iliad and the Odyssey of Homer, dreams appear to heroes and give them warnings and advice, but they can sometimes be false. And this is really interesting. In Book 2 of the Iliad, Agamemnon, the king of the Greeks, is sent a dream by Zeus which persuades him that the Greeks will defeat the Trojans the very next day if they go for an all-out assault. But it's a trick. They will actually have their asses handed to them by the Trojans for a long stretch of the Iliad. And when they finally go on bended knee to Achilles and beg him to re-enter the fighting, which he does, the tide turns, and that was Zeus's plan all along. He was basically acting on the plea of Achilles' mother to big up her son by teaching the Greeks a lesson, by having them charge into battle when they're going to get whooped. So the idea that dreams could give us knowledge straight from the divine, but could also be misleading straight from the divine, goes right back as far as Homer. It became a major concern later on when philosophers began to consider dreams in terms of whether they were legit sources of true knowledge or not, to be able to tell the true ones from the false ones. And lots of interesting taxonomies developed and in the course of the podcast, we shall be looking at some of these, to divide meaningless dreams from meaningful dreams, and then divide the meaningful dreams from divine dreams, dreams from the dead, um, perhaps deceptive dreams, etc., etc. There's some late evidence that dreams were very important to the Pythagoreans, which, if it were true of the early Pythagorean movement, would make theirs probably the first attempt to deal with dreams philosophically or proto-philosophically, but our evidence is very late, and as we shall see when we look at early Pythagoreanism in episodes 16 and 17, there are strong reasons for not reading this later evidence back onto the early Pythagorean movement, although it does tell us a lot about the Roman world in which it originates. But leaving aside the Pythagoreans, we see a widespread interest in dreams from the 5th century BCE onward in various learned philosophic and medical circles. One idea which emerges is that the reason the divine powers can communicate with us better in sleep is that the rational part of our beings, or our souls, for those who believe in a soul, is freed from the influence of the body in sleep. Now, this looks like a new model of dreaming from the Homeric one, and it is in a way, since, as we saw in episode 4, 
Homeric man didn't really have a soul as such, and certainly not one which could be distinguished strongly from his body. Now, from the 6th century onwards, some thinkers have a soul which, when the body is asleep, in a way becomes more awake. But we don't move toward a subjective view of dreams, that is, a view of dreams like many moderns would hold that they're all just coming from your brain somehow, even though people have this idea of the soul separating itself from the body. Dreams continue throughout, right through antiquity to be discussed and understood as visitations of external forces of some kind. This is the idea in Book 4 of the Hippocratic writing on regimen, from sometime in the later 5th century BCE, and we find it in lots of other authors from the 5th century onwards. The Hippocratic corpus are a number of Greek medical writings associated with the name of Hippocrates, he of Hippocratic Oath fame, but scholars doubt the authorial credentials of a lot of these texts. So the Hippocratic author, as we'll call him, speaks in On Regimen Book 1 about dream omens and how to determine medical prognoses from them. If you dream of something katafusin, according to nature, this is generally a good sign. If you dream of things parafusin, against nature, this is not so good. So presumably what's meant here is something along the lines of if you have a flu and you dream of centaurs or flying or something like that, you're probably going to be sick for some time. But if you dream of something normal, as it were, every day, this is a good sign and you'll probably get better. The example of centaurs and so on is mine, because unfortunately the Hippocratic author doesn't get into the details. But later dream literature will get into the details in a big way. We will see this when the podcast gets to the Roman period, and we encounter the Onero Critica of Artemidorus, the earliest surviving manual for mantic interpretation of dreams, which survives. It dates to sometime between the mid-2nd century and the early 3rd century CE, and Artemidorus gives us a detailed breakdown of the types of dreams there are, true and false, divine and mundane, and so forth, but also has a huge and fascinating encyclopedia of actual examples of dreams and what they mean. While we don't have much from earlier mantic dream literature in the Western tradition, it's clear that Artemidorus is part of a thriving dream book tradition. And indeed, he, he refers to a body of anonymous earlier writers on dreams, whom he calls hoi palaioi, the ancients, and uses them as authorities on all things dream. Artemidorus often nuances the meanings of dreams depending on who the dreamer is. For example, if you dream that stilts are tied onto your feet, if you're a criminal, it means you're going to get nicked. The stilts symbolizing fetters, which, like stilts, change the way you walk. But for others, this dream means sickness or time spent abroad, by the same metaphorical reasoning, since both being sick and spending time abroad sort of change the way you walk in different ways. Women who dream of giving birth to an eagle will give birth to a son who will be a military commander if the family is poor, or a governor or even a king if the family is rich. Dreaming of one's stepmother, whether she's alive or dead, is never good. Artemidorus is wonderful, and he survives in an Arabic version by Hunayn ibn Ishaq, the greatest of the Arabic translators at the Abbasid court. So his influence was felt in both Greek-speaking East Roman Middle Ages and in the Islamicate world through the, the very earliest major translation movement into the Arabic language. 
And we will return, of course, to Artemidorus later on. So there was this whole literature devoted to the interpretation of dreams, sometimes in this rather clinical, analytic way. You know, if you dream this, this will happen. But most of it's lost. Artemidorus's own Eurocritica is our earliest manual for the interpretation of mantic dreams. But we have lots of other evidence for a strong belief in the mantic power of dreams, which shows up in Greek and Roman literature more generally, as well as actually in Western thought right down to modern times, if you think about it. But going back, we see, for example, in Herodotus, the first great historian, this very attitude. In one anecdote from Herodotus, Astyages, the last king of the Median Empire, and the Medians were the Near Eastern Empire that preceded the Achaemenid Persian Empire. So Astyages is their last king, and he dreamt that a vine was growing from his daughter's vagina. This was interpreted to mean that he should fear his daughter's offspring, who, sure enough, grew up to be Cyrus the Great, founder of the Achaemenid or Persian Empire, which overthrew the Median. Astyages, of course, took appropriate measures to see that this dangerous child was killed in infancy, but of course none of them worked, and he grew up to conquer his own father, which is a classic example of the trope of the prophecy about the future, efforts to avoid which, in fact, bring about the result itself that everyone was afraid of. If we turn to the ancient Hebrew stories, we find the famous tale of Joseph in the book of Genesis. Joseph interprets everyone's dreams with prophetic accuracy, and by doing so gets himself out of prison and made into almost the second-in-command to the pharaoh of Egypt. It's interesting that Joseph in the story is an interpreter of other people's dreams. He might be the earliest hero of esoteric interpretation in the Western canon if the Bible story predates the tales of Tiresias in the Greek tradition. Tiresias is a seer and mantis who is also famed for his insights into the unseen and the symbolic language through which the gods speak to mankind. So the stories of Joseph and Astyages are two examples, but we could literally give hundreds or even thousands, not just from the ancient world, but right down to the modern period. The idea that great events are foretold by dreams is a constant theme in literature and in many people's lives as well. But if dreams can tell us what's going to happen, we want to get some of those prophetic dreams, right? Presumably on the assumption that we, unlike poor Astyages, will be able to act on the information given in the dream and avoid looming perils before they arrive. Well, there is a very ancient, very long tradition of magical practices specifically devoted to obtaining dreams. In the first instance, perhaps we should say something about the practice of incubation, which most scholars would probably be more comfortable discussing under the heading of religion than of magic. But it's not such a strong distinction anyway. Incubation refers to a very widespread practice in antiquity associated with specific cultic places of performing certain rites and then going to sleep in the sacred precinct in the hope of receiving a divine communication in dreams. Temples of the healing god Asclepius were especially associated with incubation, and we have a fascinating record of cures wrought by that god through dream prescriptions. So the god actually delivers a prescription in the dream, you go and carry it out, and you get better. And there was a kind of Asclepian incubation franchise in antiquity with lots of these temples, but there were one-offs too, like the Oracle Cave of Trophonius in Boeotia in Greece. At uh, Trophonius's oracle, you would perform purificatory rites and other customary ritual practices, the details of which are unfortunately lost, and then you descend into the cave to sleep. 
and all manner of oracular responses can be gained in this way. So incubation is a fascinating practice from antiquity, so fascinating that we're going to say nothing more about it now because it deserves an episode of all its own. But we should talk about other ritual practices devoted to acquiring dreams. The collection of Greco-Egyptian spells known as the Greek magical papyri, which will also have an episode devoted to it in due time, contains all manner of spells and rituals, some of which are aimed at obtaining dreams. This is interesting for a number of reasons, not least of which is that pretty much everyone, from credulous believers in all things magical right down to the most hard-bitten skeptics who don't believe in any of that nonsense, will agree that such magical practices would a priori have a good chance of actually working. After all, whether you dream or not is surely in some sense up to you. And so a magical ritual devoted to gaining a dream must be a bit like convincing yourself that you're going to have a dream, and I don't really see any reason why it shouldn't work. So this is a kind of magic which had a very long life, and I don't doubt that dream magic of this kind is still alive and well out there in the out-of-the-way corners of the Western world. In ancient sources, we find it in native Egyptian magic, going pretty far back, and in the Greek magical papyri, as we've mentioned. And although they date from late antiquity, they're universally agreed to preserve all manner of older material jumbled together with newer in the way that magical traditions tend to work, where their texts are constantly undergoing revision and swapping and changing and stuff. Moving to the properly Roman world, there's an intriguing and cryptic passage in the Roman satirist Juvenal, who tells us that Jewish women could be found on the open marketplaces of Rome who could sell you any dream you wanted. Now, scholars disagree over what this might mean, but I've always thought that this was a reference to a form of dream magic. Say you wanted a dream to find out if your distant relatives were doing okay or not, or you wanted to find a buried treasure and you needed a dream to tell you where it was. The Jewess, from whatever special expertise she was thought to have by non-Jews, could literally sell you that dream. And presumably, you'd go home, go to sleep, and the dream would come. We'll talk more about this curious tidbit when we get to Jewish magic in the Hellenistic period and discuss the rather ambivalent reputation that the Jews had as magical practitioners in antiquity. Now, there are also magical traditions devoted to obtaining waking visions of various sorts, of course. So down the line, we'll be talking about the Hechelot texts, again in the context of Hellenistic Judaism and beyond, which seem to have involved ritual practices aimed precisely at obtaining visions of God's heavenly palaces and, as the final goal, his celestial throne room. What relationship there might be between practices like this, which, with their extended chanting, with the head placed between the knees, may well have induced some kind of auto-hypnotic states of a powerful nature, practices for obtaining dreams, and other related practices. This is one for further research. So get to work, listeners. We can mention here in passing that the late Platonist philosopher Iamblichus makes specific reference to what is known as the hypnagogic state, that curious state of mind you go into right before you fall asleep, when dreamlike visions often make their presence felt even though you're not fully asleep yet. Iamblichus mentions that one can sometimes hear a whooshing sound as daimones, enter into the body and diffuse themselves into one in the hypnagogic state. So we see that the model of dreaming as a kind of possession by outside forces certainly survived into late antiquity in the work of Iamblichus. More on that when we get to the divine Iamblichus later in the podcast. Now we've talked a little bit about ancient dream theory here and alluded to the tradition of dream magic. We should finally say something about the tradition of dream interpretation 
as interpretation. There's something that all the examples of dreams that we've mentioned up till now in this episode have in common. They're all esoteric. That is to say, what's in the dream is one thing on the surface. A woman has a vine growing out of her nether regions. Seven fat cows come up and then seven lean cows follow them in, in the dream of Pharaoh in the story of Joseph in Genesis. What's in the dream is one thing, but its meaning is something hidden and requires interpretation to be understood. Actually, Pharaoh, these seven cows symbolize seven years of good harvests in Egypt, followed by seven lean years of harvests in Egypt, so you should get your granaries filled up now while you can. Now that's something to think about. If we hold the old-school model of what dreams are, we think that when we dream we are visited by agencies from outside ourselves who speak to us in esoteric symbols requiring skilled interpretation. Why the gods or the dead or whoever would need to communicate in this roundabout way is something that different thinkers had different ideas about down the ages. But it's clear anyway that the gods and the dead do communicate with us that way. But let's say you subscribe to the modern commonsensical view of dreams, that there are some kind of mental process which our minds or our brains generate from within us. Well, that means we are speaking directly to ourselves esoterically, which is actually even weirder if you think about it. One of the great things about dreams is the irreducible admixture of weirdness which they bring to even the most prosaic worldviews. Now, in episode 26 of the podcast, we're going to introduce the idea of esoteric hermeneutics in a big way, but it won't hurt to go into this important concept now. Esoteric hermeneutics, or esoteric interpretation, is the act of reading a text on the assumption that the text itself is esoteric, that is, that it has a secret inner meaning, often expressed through symbols or other oblique ways of expression. Now, in antiquity, there was a flourishing practice of esoteric hermeneutics. The Greeks, when they began to invent philosophy and to reflect on their traditional sources of wisdom and authority, like the Homeric poems, they ran into a problem. Homer, and many other myths and sources of myths, seemed to depict the gods doing absurd or even evil things. We mentioned Zeus's intentional deception of Agamemnon in Iliad Book 2 earlier in this episode. That's a perfect example. Philosophers, notably Plato, Aristotle, and the Stoics, found the suggestion that the gods would act this way, would do irrational or evil things, they found this patently absurd and damaging to society to boot. So what do you do with the traditional myths? Do you just chuck them? Well, the answer that most philosophers came up with was to read them esoterically. The wise founders of Greek religious practices, be they Orpheus, Homer, or the unnamed founders of the mystery cults, spoke in riddles to hide their true philosophic meaning from the masses. By such a formulation of esoteric authority in a set of canonical texts, we can both save the myths by making them secret philosophical texts, and we can also implicitly assert our authority as a true elite by our ability to read the true secret meaning, just like Joseph impressing the Pharaoh with his interpretive powers. Now, as I say, we will have more to say about this long tradition of esoteric interpretation in later episodes, but what is of note here is that the technical terminology devised in this tradition, terms like enigma, originally meaning a riddle or puzzle, but used by thinkers from at least the writer of the Derveni Papyrus sometime in the 4th century BCE, and probably a lot earlier as well, to refer to esoteric subtext, or the term sumolon, 
a term with a fascinating history in the early Pythagorean movement, which also ends up meaning a type of esoteric, riddling expression, among other meanings. These terms also show up in Artemidorus in the context of dreams. Now, Artemidorus is writing in the 2nd century CE, probably, by which time the literary tradition of esoteric reading had at least a 600-year history, if we want to mark its beginning with the Derveni papyrus. And Artemidorus has dovetailed dream interpretation fully onto that interpretation of textual esotericism. Dreams are, quite literally, esoteric messages. So the tools of esoteric textual interpretation, most commonly used to explicate traditional myths and excavate their hidden philosophical subtexts, were latched onto by the ancient traditions of dream interpretation. This makes perfect sense, as dreams do seem to have all the characteristics of myths, as we mentioned earlier. If enigma works for interpreting myths, why wouldn't it work on dreams as well? Now, in this episode, we've introduced dreams and some of the specific ways in which dreams fit into early Western esoteric ways of thinking. First of all, to recap briefly, dreams may be the source of knowledge that cannot be obtained elsewhere, divine knowledge in many cases. There are different types of dreams, some true, some false, some are visitations of the gods and the dead, others are visitations by no one in particular. This tradition of typologies of dreams is a long and complex one which we shall be exploring in the course of the podcast. Secondly, there are a whole range of ritual practices in the Western traditions aimed at obtaining dreams. We might want to talk about these practices alongside rituals for obtaining waking visions and other even more niche approaches like cultivating hypnagogic states, which seems to be what Yamblukas is talking about. This is a fascinating subject which we shall be exploring further as well. We shall also have to return to incubation, a practice with more of a presence in Western esoteric currents than is sometimes suspected. Lastly, we've noted that dreams, unless we think they really just mean what they say on their surface, are in some way esoteric, and in antiquity they were formally read in precisely the way that mythological texts and other works were in terms of esoteric subtexts and true meanings concealed behind a screen of symbolic images. But the final thing I would like to say, to recap here, is the strange fact, which we alluded to right at the beginning of this episode, that everyone dreams, and thus everyone is regularly exploring the same kind of otherworldly landscape which esoteric thinkers have made their home down the ages. To return to the title of this episode from the words of the great Roy Orbison, we're together in dreams. And so, even the least esoteric-minded of our listeners should realize that they really have no choice but to stay esoteric. <laughs>